20 is where we are, and just a little bit of review from uh, last week. The climax of Jesus' ministry was his atoning death and physical resurrection leading to his ascension. If you're thinking of the central works of Christ that constitute the gospel, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. Okay? Ascension is often forgotten, isn't it? We uh, will sometimes not mention that when we're talking about the work of Christ. But as we'll see through this study, that's also very important that Jesus ascended into heaven. Hebrews 7.26, it was indeed fitting that we should have, a, have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Last week, I introduced the idea of propitiation. And so if you didn't catch the blanks up here on uh, page 20, we'll fill those in here. Uh, it means covering. The word propitiation, definitional, definitionally, it's covering or satisfactory payment, and it always refers to Jesus' death. Jesus did not make propitiation or atonement, if that's the word you want to use. He didn't make that any other time that he bled in his life. Because there were other times that he bled in his life. But he made that satisfactory payment when he died on the cross. And if you remember back to, uh, you know, I mentioned Leviticus 16 here. If you remember the Day of Atonement in Israel where you had goats and bulls, they were dying. It wasn't just that they went and got a blood sample from a goat and they sprinkled just enough from the blood sample and that was it. No, the, the goat or the bull or whoever had to give its life. At Passover, the spotless lamb had to give its life. Okay, so it's always referencing death. Payment was to be made for sin. God is the judge and the offended. He requires of sinners both punishment and restitution. He was the one who was to do that through the person of the Son, ultimately. And so the nature of this propitiation, again, filling in the blanks here, the nature of this propitiation is substitutionary. Jesus accomplished this in our place for our sins. He wasn't making payment for anything of his own. He was making payment for us okay, in our place for our sins, in our stead. Okay. And the wrath that Jesus endured in the propitiation is God's. That's the next blank here. Jesus endured God's wrath in his death, and this resulted in divine favor for those to whom the propitiation is applied. So not only when someone believes in Christ and the atoning sacrifice of Christ is applied to them, not only is that person receiving forgiveness of sins, but that person is also receiving divine favor. Okay? That's what's happening in the propitiation. There's a satisfactory payment made, not just to get you up to zero. You owed an infinite debt to God, right? Infinite debt. Jesus doesn't just get you up to zero. He puts infinite riches into your account. And so you receive divine favor in that too. Uh, some religions, of course, will teach if they incorporate Jesus' death into their teachings. They'll say, well, when Jesus died, he you know, got you to, to the bottom stair on the staircase. And now it's up to you to work your way up. It's up, it's up to you to earn favor with God. Well, that's not what the biblical gospel teaches. The biblical gospel teaches that when you receive forgiveness of sins, you actually blew past zero, 
Your infinite debt was forgiven, but you went past zero, and now you have infinite righteousness on your account, resulting in divine favor with God that no man could ever take away. And God will certainly never take that away. All right? Um, let's revisit Philippians 2, 5 through 8 together. Let's go there. We'll look at a few passages today. We'll look at them all together. They're all going to be New Testament passages today. But let's start with Philippians 2. Let's have someone read those verses for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Rex, go ahead. Right, so the culmination of the hypostatic union of Christ, and that's what we covered before this lesson, that Jesus is both truly man and truly God. The culmination of his incarnation, you could say, the virgin birth, his impeccable nature, and the perfect display of obedience was death on a cross. You see that in verse 8? All this leads up to him humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His propitiation, his atoning sacrifice, his whole life led up to this moment where he would die on a cross. So this is absolutely central to Christian belief, absolutely central to the gospel, the propitiation. Right? So I'll pause there before we go to Romans uh, to see if there are any thoughts or questions at this point. Any confusion or helpful, wise insight? <laughs> or unwise insight? Just, just insight. Doing okay? All right, well, let's go to Romans 3 together. We're going to look uh, now at Romans 3, 21 to 26. If you've got your sheet in front of you there on page 20, you see there are four passages we're going to look at, starting with Romans 3, 21. What Paul has been doing in the book of Romans up to this point is he has spent two and a half chapters, essentially, condemning everyone. By God's inspiration, the apostle here is saying, those Gentiles, they are sinners, they deny the true God, the creator to whom they owe all things. They deny him. They suppress the truth of God and they replace that with a lie. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the creature. They exchange wisdom for foolishness. Gentiles are sinners. And all the Jews, you can almost hear them roaring in the background. Yes, very true. They're the dogs. But then comes chapter 2 where Paul says, and you Jews... Same thing. Uh, you too are sinners. And a true Jew is not one who is circumcised externally, trusting in works of the flesh, but a true Jew is one who has had his heart circumcised, one who believes. A true spiritual Jew, someone who is actually saved, is someone who has been justified by faith. And just because you're Jewish, just because you're born into this ethnicity or this nation or this country, however you want to phrase it, that does not mean you are exempt from the condemnation of God in your sin. So he's saying Jews and Gentiles alike are condemned by a holy God. And that's what the start of Romans 3 is about. If you look down at the start of Romans 3, you've got that diatribe there starting in verse 10, where Paul says there is none righteous, no, not even one. And he quotes Psalm 14, and he says the mouths of all people, it's an open grave. They have the poison of snakes in their mouths. 
They, their, their feet are swift to shed blood. People are just wicked. And if you've been in the real world, you know this to be true, right? That yes, to a degree, people reflect the image of God and they do good things, but it doesn't flow from a pure heart, does it? It's almost like in spite of or even in light of the reality that their hearts are evil, they still have some acts of kindness here and there and some good things happen here and there. But if we're to, we're to say, what is the state of man? We have to say, not good, not good. That man is selfish and prideful, self-serving. And if you're in touch with your own flesh, you just know this to be the case. So now Paul, after all of that bad news, starts getting to some good news here. And that's starting in verse 21. And let's see how the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the satisfactory payment of Jesus is central to this. Verses 21 to 26. Who can read that for us? Romans 3, 21 to 26. Who's got it? Mike? Yes. I love that verse 26, that God is just. If you've ever been in a situation where your innocence was called into question, in Jesus as their Savior and the righteousness that comes from Jesus as their own righteousness, is if you've got some righteousness on your account, right? God doesn't ignore sin. We have God's righteousness on our account because of what Jesus has done. And the propitiation. Because, you know, you, you believe in me, now I'm just going to forget everything. No, no, no. God addresses your sin in the work of Christ. All of your sin was placed on Jesus. It's not that God just snaps his fingers and forgets about it. There was a means of this forgiveness, the substitutionary death of Christ. All of your sins, past, present, and future, had to be atoned for. The man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us, truly went through that for us because of our sin. You think of that uh, song that we sing, um, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Your sin held him there until it was accomplished. I hear my voice call out among the scoffers, our sin. That was our sin. And so it's not that God did that just to show that he loves us, even though that's true. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But in that act of love, there was also something judicial taking place. Your sin was being taken care of in the death, the suffering of Jesus Christ. Joe, do you have a thought or question on all that? Well, that is a great question, isn't it? Um, if someone, you said, with knowledge, continues in sin, does God continue to forgive? There are a couple of verses that come to mind. One is uh, Romans 6, 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Well, he's teaching there that there's something... Um, something to God's grace that should change us. And if there is no change, 
if we are just looking at grace as a hmm, a get out of hell free card that we could go to the grave doing whatever we want and get, well God can't say boo because we're holding him to his you know his grace now I get to do whatever I want ha ha gotcha God Paul's saying something here like you don't get it right you don't get it there's another verse though that has haunted me for a long time uh, haunted me as a new Christian and uh, continues to haunt me to a degree. It's one of these warning verses in the New Testament that, um, you know, quite frankly, I'm just not sure how to nail it down the way I'd like to. It's Hebrews 10.26. It says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's what I'm saying, yeah. What does that mean? Now, I think there's a, a lot of overlap there with what I was just saying about Romans 6.1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. I think there's a, very much an overlap. I think those verses, those warning verses, are there for true believers as an aspect of what prods us on. Uh, you think of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, I work my body in such a way, I, I beat myself over, that I might not become disqualified. And that disqualification he's talking about there is disqualification from the Christian life. Disqualification in God's sight. Can a believer really become disqualified when Paul's the very one who writes that God has qualified us to share with the saints in light? Colossians 1. Our qualification is a work of God, so how could we disqualify ourselves? Yeah, yeah. Those whom God has saved, he, is, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. Yes, he has saved us, he holds us fast. It's a song we sing, you know. We believe all that. But these warning passages also are there for a reason. And they need, we, we need to just, just feel the weight of that and live with that tension. And I think what happens as believers read such warnings is that God works in us a fear, a holy fear, a good fear of a, of a good father. He works in us a perseverance. That's a part of his completing process as he completes that good work to the end. I think this is all, these are all means that God uses in our lives to mature us and to bring us through to the end. Great question with a lot of different answers, okay? Uh, but yeah, that's off the top of my head. Other thoughts or questions on any of that? That was a, that was a thinking woman's question there, Joe. That was good. Okay, um, any thoughts or questions on Ro or Romans 3, 21 to 26 there, before we move on to the next one? You'll notice in Romans <clears throat> that Paul talks about God's righteousness a lot. Uh, that You see that in verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's because the overall theme of Romans is God's righteousness. That first two and a half chapters is about how man in his natural state doesn't have God's righteousness. And because of God's righteousness, man is condemned. But now he starts in this section explaining how the righteousness of God actually is displayed through Christ's work and it results in salvation for those who believe. And we'll see that more in chapter 5. So let's go over to Romans 5, 6 through 11. 
Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6, who would read this passage for us? All right, so um, something you may notice here in this passage that Jin just read for us is that the word propitiation doesn't come up. In fact, these remaining three passages that we're going to walk through, the word propitiation is not in there. Now, each of these is describing the propitiation of Christ, but the word for propitiation comes up in its various forms six times in the New Testament, and I can give you those if you're interested in jotting them down and looking them up later. In addition to Romans 3, where we see the word, we have it in Hebrews 2, 17, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, also 1 John 2, 2, does someone have that verse memorized, 1 John 2, 2, that's a really good one. We'll have, to, we'll have to look at that one. If you don't have that one memorized, we'll, we will look at that one. 1 John 2, 2. There's also 1 John 4, 4. And then two interesting passages where it doesn't get translated as propitiation are Hebrews 9, 5. Hebrews 9, 5. And Luke 18, 13. Luke 18, 13. Now, what's really interesting about the Luke 18 one is that's where Jesus is telling the uh, parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector or the publican and how the Pharisee is, you know, praising God that he's not like, you know, all the dirty people out there. And the, the publican beats his breast and says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. That word merciful is the same root word here. It's not the normal word for mercy in the New Testament. It's the same root word as propitiation. Lord, provide propitiation for me, the sinner. That's pretty remarkable stuff. Okay, so those are your passages where you get the word propitiation. And like I said, we'll come back to 1 John 2 too. But Romans 5, 6 through 11, really important passage talking about what Jesus' death accomplishes. The propitiation of Christ gives the believer the following. Justification, salvation, Reconciliation. Justification, salvation, reconciliation. If you look at verse 9 of Romans 5, it says, We are justified by his blood. The atoning sacrifice of Christ, the propitiation of Christ, justifies us when it's applied to us through faith. And because of that, we shall be saved. We shall be saved. There's a salvation, you could say, through the propitiation of Christ. And this is also really important, the end of verse 9. What are we saved from? What does it say? The wrath of God. So going back to that blank up above Romans 3, Jesus endured God's wrath. Okay, there are some people who would deny that, who would look at the atoning death of Christ and say that, some say he was ransoming us from Satan. He was paying Satan's ransom to win humanity back from Satan. Well, here it says that he was actually satisfying the wrath of God. Okay? He was enduring the wrath of God. And then, of course, reconciliation. We see that in verses 10 and 11. We're, we're reconciled through what Jesus has done the very end of verse 11, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay? So justification, salvation, reconciliation, all wrapped up in the propitiation of Christ. A lot of 
T-I-O-N words we're <laughs> uh, listing off here, okay? Thoughts, questions on that? Romans a pretty good book? Yeah, I'd say so, uh-huh. You want good Christian doctrine, uh, Romans is a great place to start, all right? You need the whole Bible, but Romans is a great place to start. All right, well, let's find Hebrews. Go toward the back of your Bible, find the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. I guess we will hit one of the uh, places where propitiation is used, that Greek word. And I gave you the verse of Hebrews 9, but now it's going to be uh, your challenge to figure out which word it is, because it's not translated as propitiation, kind of like that Luke 18 instance. But I'll read this for us. Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 14. Starting there at the start of uh, verse 9, or chapter 9. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's a few things to see in there, huh? Pretty heavy stuff. Well, you get the, uh, the big picture, I hope. Basically, you have two sections to that passage. First section is explaining what it was like in the Old Covenant, those priests under the law. Well, what did they have to do? You had priests who would go into the first area who would make sacrifices as a part of the worship that was prescribed by God in the law, and then into the holiest place, the holy of holies, behind the second curtain or the second veil. Who could go in there? Only the high priest. How many high priests were there? One at a time. 
And how often could he go in there? And what did he had to have with him, according to this passage, when he would go in there? Yeah, he, could, he couldn't go without blood. He had to go in there with blood, and it was blood from goats, bulls, that sort of thing, to make sacrifice, or for, to, to make atonement, you could say, for the people year by year. So the animal gave its life, he took the blood in, and he made atonement on what? On the mercy seat. Now that's interesting. If you look at verse 5, where it says mercy seat, that's our word for propitiation. Isn't that, isn't that funny? The word mercy seat. But once again, we have propitiation tied to mercy, God's mercy in the atoning sacrifice. The mercy seat represented the place where atoning sacrifice would be made, how the people could be forgiven. So that's what's going on there in Hebrews 9 in the first part explaining what would happen. The mercy seat in Israel's tabernacle foreshadowed the propitiation of Christ. His sacrifice is better. Note, all of these sacrifices involve death, right? This wasn't just, again, getting the, a little you know, a vial of blood and then going in there. They had to kill the animals. There was lots of blood, and with that blood, they had to go in to make sacrifice on the mercy seat. So that's what you have going on in the first part, basically verses 1 through 10. And then starting in verse 11 now, we are finding out here in Hebrews 9 how there's a fulfillment of this foreshadowing. All this, this stuff that God set up with the tabernacle and the holiest place, the, the mercy seat, the blood of animals, it all foreshadowed this final sacrifice. So notice how verse 11 begins, but when Christ appeared, and he, he appeared not only as a high priest, but also as a sacrifice. It says high priest there in verse 11. But if you go down, he's also a sacrifice. It's the blood of Christ. He offered himself. He's both priest and sacrifice. The final priest, the final sacrifice. And Jesus was both. He was the perfect sacrifice, and he was the perfect priest. He accomplished both, he fulfilled both roles in his final once-for-all sacrifice that was offered through the eternal Spirit. Right? So, again, we don't have in English the word propitiation here in this text, but I think you can see how this is describing the propitiation of Christ, the satisfactory payment of Christ. Lots you could see, a lot of directions we could go, but that's the big idea of Hebrews 9. Questions on that? One, down through verse 25. Oh, I know why you, go, you guys aren't asking questions. Because we don't have our microphones up in here yet. You want to be on the record if you're going to talk. You, you want your voice to be on the recording. That's got to be it, right? <clears throat> You guys should view this as your chance. No one's going to hear what you say. No one's going to know who asked the question. <laughs> Ask whatever you want. Okay, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. Would someone like to read that for us? Stan, go ahead. So this passage is kind of like the Philippians 2 passage where... The point of the apostle here isn't to give us just doctrine on paper, right? He's making an ethical point. 
You notice the heading there, at least in the New American Standard, before verse 21. Christ is our example. In your suffering, imitate Christ who suffered. In your suffering, in your trial, look to Christ and see how he endured suffering and trial. And follow Christ in your suffering. But in the middle of that, we do get some amazing doctrine that we do put on paper. Kind of like with the Philippians 2, where Jesus emptied himself and became a man. He existed in the form of God. Okay, we have this amazing doctrine there. And we have that here too in verse 24. Notice the point that Paul is making doctrinally, or that Peter's making doctrinally, about what Jesus did. Our sins were taken on by Christ. Again, that's the substitutionary nature on the cross. He also gives us the location on the cross. And this is where the propitiation was made. His wounds bring healing. He endured God's wrath that we might experience God's favor. That's what's going on here in the propitiation. And Peter spells this out. Verse 24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins. And two locations are given here. One, in his body. And two, on the cross. And the purpose that follows, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We are now enabled to follow Jesus. Because of what he has done to save us, we are now free from the power of sin. We're now free from the bondage of the law. We are now free to follow Christ by dying to sin and living to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. And notice it is past tense. By his wounds, you were healed healed. You have now been healed of that sin problem you had, the condemnation that you deserved. You've been healed from the sin that plagued you, that corrupted you, that polluted your soul. You've now been purified by what Jesus has done. In his body on the cross. This is a great verse to share with Latter-day Saint neighbors who want to uh, talk about the garden. They'll say that the garden is where atonement was made when he prayed in the garden before the cross and his sweat became like drops of blood. They'll say that he literally did sweat blood and that that, and you can make the argument either way on that, and that that is where the atonement was made and that the cross essentially becomes just where he died. But that is not the theology that we have from the New Testament. The New Testament says in the cross or at the cross in his body is where he took care of our sins. That's where he bore our sins. It was on the cross. And you get that in Colossians 2 and several other places. Colossians chapter 2, that God, it says that God took care of our debt by setting, us, setting it aside, having nailed it to the cross. Our debt was nailed to the cross. It wasn't sweat out in the garden, okay? Well, let's look at 1 John 2.2, 2, not 1 Peter, but go forward in the New Testament to 1 John 2. Probably need to read verse 1 also. <clears throat> but here's another place you get that word propitiation. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So there's another place where you get that word propitiation, and these two verses are great for you to memorize. That we have an advocate with the Father, don't we? And if you sin, you go right to your advocate. If you continue in certain sin patterns, if you have moments of sin, I shouldn't say if, when you do, run to your advocate. He is your propitiation, and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world, okay? When you have conversations about the atoning work of Christ, focus on the location, the payment, and the substitutionary aspect. At the cross, in his body, the fact that this was a payment, a satisfactory payment to God because of God's wrath, his just wrath against sin, and the fact that Jesus was doing that for us in our place, for our sins. That's what was going on there, okay? Any final thoughts or questions on the death of Christ before we move on to the resurrection of Christ? So once we move on to resurrection, I'm not going to talk about the death ever again. Okay. I hope it's clear. Always makes me a little nervous when no one's asking questions or anything. I guess we're doing okay. All right. Resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in all of history because of the validation it provides. Okay. So we'll talk about this, of course, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, April 9th this year. And remember, I think I shared this the end of last service or the one before, that we are seeking to have a uh, everyone here day on Resurrection Day. Okay, Sunday, April 9th, if you're in town, everyone here, April 9th, Easter Sunday, okay? But think of what the resurrection validates. His teachings, his works, his death, the gospel, scripture itself. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, his teachings would become null and void. Because you know what Jesus taught? He taught he'd rise from the dead, <laughs> okay? So if a guy is walking around, he's got a following, and he says, uh, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Or if he tells his disciples, they're going to persecute the Son of Man, they're going to kill him, and he'll rise after three days. If he teaches these things, and then he goes to the grave and stays in the grave, and we just have his body like we have everyone else's body, well, then you can just ignore everything he said. He was a liar. Or he was a lunatic, right? Maybe you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Well, if he didn't rise from the dead, he's either a liar or a lunatic, isn't he? His works, his miracles would have all been fabricated in some way. His death wouldn't have meant anything. If he can't rise from the dead, then... All of his works, null and void. The gospel message itself. What is our hope if Jesus is still in the grave? There is no hope. No Christian hope. What assurance do you have of pardon, of forgiveness of sins? None. 
if Jesus is still in the grave? What about the scripture that prophesied that Jesus would rise from the dead, that he would have his days prolonged? We'll look at those momentarily. But the scripture itself would be broken. That's a big deal, isn't it? So the resurrection is central to everything in the Christian life because of its validation for all these things. It's the most important event in all of human history. Now here's a question for you. You can answer this in a few different ways, but there it is. Why do we believe that Jesus is alive? Okay, Joe says the Bible tells us so. Not a bad answer at all. Anything you want to add to that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, what Joe has said, the Bible has told us, that is sufficient, right? The Bible is sufficient for all matters of life and practice, belief, doctrine, including the resurrection. But how good of God, how kind of God to give us even more than that, right? Like Rex was just mentioning, there were witnesses to the resurrection. Those witnesses being his disciples. And what did his disciples go on to do with their lives? Yes, totally sold out for Jesus, weren't they? So much so that, yeah, they were martyrs. They would not deny Jesus. Now, if there was anybody who knew that Jesus was a fraud or his resurrection was a fraud, if that was the case, it would have been like Peter, James, and John, the other disciples. And does anybody die for a lie? Maybe you'd find one, two, three people. What about 12? Well, 11. Who who are following Christ, who believe in Christ, and they all, as far as we know, they were persecuted, martyred, and there were even more than that, right? As it spread, like Rex said, 500. These people believed in Christ and were willing to die for him. And so you got to think through that. Why do you believe that Jesus is alive? you got to have some answers for that. And there are multiple answers, uh, a few directions that you could go. But, uh, yeah, those are good. All right, the resurrection. There are three Old Testament texts that speak of the mystery of the resurrection. I have them there for you on your sheet. There's Job 19, Psalm 16, and Isaiah 53. And so, um, let's see. I'm not remembering what I do here. Huh. Okay, well, let's look at these real quick. Let's go to Job. Job 19. Starting at verse... 25. Job 1925. 1925, that was a good year, wasn't it? I'll say that sometimes at the store, like uh, my total will be, you know, 19 something, or sometimes even like, you know, 1487. Be like, oh, that was a good year, wasn't it? And they just stare at me. That's. Uh, So don't recommend that method of making friends. But uh, Job 19, 25 to 27. Who can read this for us? 
Thank you. Okay, now this is the most uh, perhaps ambiguous of the three in the Old Testament. But it's clear here that we have a proclamation, verse 25, that the Redeemer is a living Redeemer. Okay? It's not that the Redeemer, the one who redeems Israel, is going to come and cease to be. And it's also clear, verse 26, that there's resurrection language being used here. I mean, think of how paradoxical this sounds. After my skin is destroyed, from my flesh I shall see God. That's hope of a resurrection, it sounds like to me. And Job is likely the first book of the Bible written before Moses, so before Genesis. Now, I'm not going to die on that hill, but I do think that's the case, because Job never mentions Abraham or Moses or Israel or any of the tribes. So you don't really have that evidence in Job that he came later. And that's why I lean that way. And so how profound, if Job is indeed the first book of the Bible written, that we have this resurrection language here, and it's resurrection that he's applying to himself, I myself shall see God, I shall behold, my eyes will see, and not another. That's amazing. Okay, so there's resurrection language here, and it's directly tied to the fact that my Redeemer lives. If you guys know that song, that's where it comes from, is that verse, okay? Good. Let's go to uh, Psalm 16 now. Psalm 16:10. We should probably read 10 and 11 to finish off the psalm. Psalm 16 verses 10 and 11. Who would like to read that for us? Connie, go ahead. <laughs> Verse 11 is real sweet, isn't it? That's a good verse. What we see in verse 10, where the psalmist here is declaring before God, and this is David, of course, speaking, that God will will not abandon his soul to the grave. Sheol, the pit, the, the place where all dead people were going at that time. God was not going to abandon his soul, and God was not going to allow the Holy One, to undergo decay. Now, David is applying this to himself. And, of course, there is the sense in which, like with we were just saying in Job, that we will be resurrected. I mean, people aren't going to stay in the graves. But people will be resurrected. And David, one day, will be resurrected. But what you have here is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ. As we get to the New Testament and we read Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2, Peter's there at Pentecost preaching to his fellow Jews, and he quotes this verse. And he says, fellas, David's grave is with us to this day. David's still in the grave. And David's body literally has undergone decay. He applies this verse to the resurrection of Christ. He says, there's someone who has just come and suffered and died who is not in the grave, and that's Jesus. That this 
of course, has the, the sense of one day David with all people will be resurrected. However, there's a messianic prophecy here, a prediction about the Messiah who is to come that the Holy One, Jesus, will not undergo decay, but he will live. He will be resurrected. And you can see that, like I said, in Acts chapter 2 is where Peter applies that. And for whatever reason, I'm not seeing the cross-reference to Acts 2 in my Bible, so now i got to look it up myself. Man. Acts 2.25. Good. Okay. Yeah. There's also Acts 13 where Paul's preaching in a synagogue. But in Acts 2.25, Peter says, For David says of him, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Verse 27. Verse 29, Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So that's how Peter applies that passage to the resurrection of Christ. Thoughts or questions on Psalm 16? There, there is a general sense in which, yeah, because, I mean, you see the first-person language that's used there, yes. Yeah, that's hard to know, isn't it? <clears throat> um, in 1 Peter 1, it says that the prophets from long ago uh, were led by the Spirit of Christ to prophesy, but they did not know which person or of what time they were speaking. They longed to know those things, but they didn't know that. And now it's been revealed that they were not speaking for their own benefit, but for our benefit. So that's how Peter, who, you know, again, took that passage and applied it next to, that's how he kind of answers that question is, they were led by the Spirit, of course. They knew that this was divine revelation, but they did not have the details like we have the details. And so where that exact line is on what they knew and what they didn't know, I don't know if we can draw a bold one or not. Yeah, that's a good question. Any other questions or thoughts on that? Okay, well, let's finish with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a famous passage mainly for its commentary on the, at that point, future death of Christ. But verse 10 also contains resurrection language. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Would someone read that one verse for us? Go ahead, Katrina. So if you examine that verse, you got a couple different things going on that don't look like they go together, right? First half of verse 10, Yahweh is crushing him and putting him to grief, and he's being rendered as a guilt offering. And remember, these offerings died. The offerings always died. They weren't just pricked so they would bleed a little bit. They died. And yet, the second half of the verse says, He will see his offspring, his days will be prolonged, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, how does that make sense? 
He's going to be crushed and killed, and he's going to have his days prolonged. And there's going to be prosperity. That only makes sense if you, again, see the work of Christ in this, as it's very clearly pointing to, and that includes a resurrection. He will be put to grief. He will be an offering. He will die, yet his days are going to be prolonged. He's going to see his offspring. That's not literal offspring, but the children of God, those who are disciples of Christ. And the good pleasure of the Lord is going to prosper in his hand. And that's going to happen, of course, from that point forward as Jesus rules and reigns in his church and in the future over the whole world. So there's a resurrection here that is key to understanding what's going on in verse 10. Psalm 16 is the most explicit prophecy, as we just looked at, but uh, oh, it's also the only one of the three with the New Testament commentary. Ah, there it is. That's where I put the passage. Acts 2, 29-36, Peter explained its reference to Christ and evidenced it by witnesses, His glorification, and the Spirit's coming. We'll pick up here next week. But there are three passages, as I see it, in the Old Testament that refer to the resurrection. Uh, Psalm 1610 is the only one where the New Testament makes that connection, but I think those other two are pointing that way also. Okay. Well, very good. We'll uh, continue talking about the resurrection next week and then maybe get into the ascension. We'll see how far we can go because we have several passages to look at. Oh, my. Yeah, I don't know if we'll finish this next week, but we'll just keep plodding along. How about I pray, and then we'll move on to the next thing. Father God, again, we thank you for today and this time together. Please bless our fellowship as we move on to the next part of our corporate worship today, uh, that we would have a sweet time of singing praises to you and learning more from your word. Lord, we love you and thank you so much for all that we have in Christ. And it's in his name we pray.